text. If you have your Bible, you have your iPad, a device, uh, you can turn. Uh, we'll be reading from the ESV English translation uh, from Colossians chapter 3, verse 21 through 25, and chapter 4, verse 1 today. And uh, the title of my sermon is The Eternal Dividends of Humility. The Eternal Dividends of Humility. We'll read that text, and then we'll continue with our message. So Colossians chapter 3, verse 21, reading today from the ESV translation. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. May God bless the reading of his word as we share the importance of humility today from our text. Notice on the next slide we have an artist's depiction of Christ washing his disciples' feet. And you may be wondering, how does this connect to sharing communion, the Lord's Supper, at the conclusion of the sermon today? How, how does this all connect with the concept of humility? Paul, throughout the teaching of the epistles in the book of Corinthians, talks about sharing the, and celebrating communion in a respectful, humble way. In fact, some were asleep or had died in the church because they were disrespectful in the process of celebrating the Lord's Supper. And so at the root of the problem was pride. And so it's important as we look at the picture, this artist's depiction of the Lord Jesus washing his disciples' feet, that we're reminded that Jesus demonstrated in his own life and actions a spirit of humility. As you read through the scriptures, you see that Jesus said, let he who is Lord, and Jesus was Lord. <laughs> he was the creator, the savior, the king of kings, God in flesh, Emmanuel. Yet Jesus said, let he that is Lord become a servant. And one writer writing a, a song about the Lord's Supper depicted it this way in his lyrics. He said, the disciples were discussing who would be the greatest. You know, John and James, the sons of Zebedee, my brother and I were named after them, thanks to mom and dad who were in ministry. And uh, the sons of Zebedee were discussing, I want to sit at the right hand of, God, of Christ. And James, I want to sit at the left hand of Christ. Who's going to be the greatest in heaven? And this was an appropriate scenario for Jesus to teach him one of the greatest lessons we all can learn from. If you want to truly be great, be humble, be a servant. If you indeed are Jesus, the Lord, Savior, and Master and Creator of the universe, 
you're not too good to wash someone's feet. As we think of the title of our sermon, The Eternal Dividends of Humility, the word dividend is defined as a reward or return, a share of something. We think of that in senses of financial or fiscal uh, concepts. Humility is characterized as an attitude of genuine gratefulness without arrogance or pride. Merriam-Webster defines humility as freedom from pride or arrogance, a state of being humble. And so humility is essential to a believer's worship of Christ, his sacrifice, his blood, his body, his death. True biblical humility, unlike false humility or pseudo-humility, is honestly seeking the Lord Jesus Christ in our helplessness, recognizing and confessing we are helpless. We need the sovereign Savior to help us. You know, God's grace is amazing. And speaking of that, John Newton, who wrote that famous and familiar song, Amazing Grace, John Newton shared these words, quote, I am persuaded that humility and love are the highest attainments in the school of Christ and the brightest evidence that he is indeed our master, end of quote. John Newton had experienced God's amazing grace. He wrote about it, and he reflects that love and humility are at the heart of Christ. They are evidence of God's love for us and to us and through us. I want to illustrate this very quickly because Jesus Christ is the groom. Pastor Gary shared last week about the family dynamic. And we'll see in a moment in verse 21 that this is a bridge to the connecting of humility. Humility in our lives as, as Christians, as believers, as husbands, as wives, as fathers, as mothers, as family. Not only a part of God's family because Christ is the groom and the church is the bride. And so April, if you'll come forward very quickly. I tried to use real water and this is an antique. And when I did, uh, I started leaking. Thank you, Elaine, for noticing. And Miss Sandy. So I don't have real water in here, so use your imagination. You know, like Barney, the purple dinosaur. Use your imagination, right? So let's pretend there's water in here. And so uh, April, uh, put your fake foot in there, if you will, and pretend like I'm... Okay. So in some denominations, though it's pretty rare now, they do practice feet washing, right? John chapter 13, Jesus said that I leave this as an example for you. And the idea is not that is anything dynamic or wonderful, come back, wonderful in the concept, the concept of the ordinance that some profess of feet washing. Uh, it doesn't save us. Communion doesn't make you a Christian. But it is a reflection of our desire to please God and of humility in Christ. So, April, let's, let's wash your feet real quick. You can. Just make it look real. Yeah, sorry. I just, you'll have to stand and let your feet be washed. <laughs> it's okay. All right. Can you see? All right, good. Okay, and 
I don't have a towel either, so I'm drying it off now. This is what we would do, dry it off. Right off. Okay, thank you. All right. Okay, so fake water, fake chair, f- fake a towel. Okay, so you get the concept. I have heard of churches that would actually go to homeless shelters as part of their outreach ministry and have worked not only in a soup kitchen, but actually would wash the feet of those men and women that were homeless. And the idea behind feet washing is far more than just uh, a ritual or something we do to say, well, Jesus did that to his disciples, uh, as we saw the picture of the artist depicting it and the Lord's Supper. Uh, But the idea that Jesus was teaching his disciples and teaching us thousands of years later that we should demonstrate humility in our actions. And someone said charity begins at home. Well, humility does as well. Begins with our own family. And so that brings us into the text. As Christ told his disciples, if you want to be first, then you need to be a servant because the first shall be last and the last shall be first. It begins with being a servant, having a humble heart, and serving those that we love. Serving those that we may not even always love. As Jesus said, anyone can love those who already love them, but love your enemies and show them that Christ has made a difference in you. So notice verse 21 in our text today. We see on the screen the eternal dividends of humility reflected in our family relationships. So Pastor Gary talked about wives, husbands, children, in verses 18 through 20. And verse 21 almost acts as a bridge to the next thought. Notice verse 21 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. It's interesting, the Greek word for father is pater. And uh, it certainly is admonishing fathers especially but also is admonishing both. David Guzek writes, Paul reminds us that bad behavior can actually be provoked by the parent. When this is the case, it doesn't justify the bad behavior of the child, but it may explain part of why they behave in a poor way. N.T. Wright shares, quote, The word fathers here in verse 21 can refer to parents of both sexes though it may well have an eye or target focus on the importance of the father's role within God's created order in the upbringing of children. And so the father is to be the spiritual leader of the home. And in many surveys, those who are in prison had a lack of leadership and influence from their father. And so it's significant that verse 21, after having spoke to wives about being biblically submissive in the context of the family and husbands to love and to cherish and to honor their wives and not to cause them uh, to feel poorly by being harsh with them and children to be obedient, that it specifically takes time to say to fathers, Fathers, do not provoke your children. The word provoke is interesting. It literally means to stir up, to exasperate, to irritate. And so fathers, we need to be careful. Parents, we need to be careful not to exasperate, irritate, agitate, provoke our children 
to do the opposite of what we desire for them to be truly happy in following Christ. Perfectionism can sometimes lead to an idea or attitude of discouragement, which can cause children, even growing up in a Christian home, to think that their parents are against them, even though the parents may be doing it for their own good. May God give us grace as Christian parents to not provoke or demand without also encouraging our children to do what is right. In other words, the idea is almost don't be legalistic in your moral obligation to do what's right, to provoke and stir up and exasperate your children to a sense of, I cannot be perfect, so I'm just going to go do wrong with everyone else in the world. And so it's important to have an attitude of humility. Pride is at the root of what causes us to provoke unnecessarily our children and discourage them. And then notice as we continue, verse 22, the eternal dividends of humility responding to earthly owners as well as beginning with our family. Verse 22a, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Christians are not to be so heavenly minded that they are better than thou in their attitude toward their superiors, their supervisor, their earthly master. In context, this submissive attitude toward masters could be in our world an employer or a supervisor. We're not to have an attitude like, I only answer to Jesus. Jesus is my boss, so I don't care what you say. No, Christians should have an attitude that reflects a humility to do something, not immoral, but to do your job just like others who work hard and do their job. More than half the people, writes one scholar in the context of verse 22, when it says bond servants, in some English translations it uses the word slaves, more than half the people seen on the streets of Roman Greco culture in this first century world were slaves or bond servants. This included, writes Vaughn, people even like teachers and doctors as well as craftsmen. So slavery was rampant in the first century when the book of Colossians was written to the church of Colossae. And certainly I'll go ahead and admonish you, the Bible is not condoning slavery of any kind. The, the Bible is not condoning servanthood of any kind. The Bible here is simply saying, for the culture you're in, if you are a slave or a servant, understand the bigger picture. Do your job. Work hard. Be humble. Understand that these are, notice verse 22a, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. You know what the word here for bond servants or slaves is? It's a Greek word, doulos. Doulos is the Greek word for slave or servant. It literally means one who gives up his or her will for the will of their superior. That is the idea of humility, of submission. Some believers may have, in the first century, worked for unbelieving bosses or supervisors. And they could have had an attitude that was not always characteristic of what Paul is admonishing them to have, an attitude that reflects Christ's humility and appropriate submission to Christ and to the Father in heaven. 
There's a cliche some have used over the years. More is caught than taught. A hardworking, humble person may demonstrate the love of Christ by their actions. Many times we catch on to things by watching how people live more than what they say. And so the attitude here is bond servants, verse 22, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, literally masters or supervisors in the earthly flesh. But here's why. It's going to tell us in the rest of verse 22 the motivation. Verse 22, we continue, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. We see the third point, the eternal dividends of humility by rejecting prideful ambition. Someone said, I'm humble and proud of it. (laughs) Well, there's a tendency that when we do things, even as a believer in the workplace, and maybe you're the only believer, I have worked in places where I felt I was the only Christian in that entire store, in that entire department. But even if we're the only Christian and everyone else is not very religious, shall we say, we have a motivation that is beyond just doing a good job and obeying and submitting to our supervisor. God wants every worker to see that ultimately they work for God. Not to impress earthly supervisors or to boost our ego or pride, but rather out of respect and reverence Because of the fear of the Lord. Did you see that at the end of verse 22? Not as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. One definition of humility is to honestly fear and have reverence for the Lord. This causes me to act a certain way. Because I do answer to a higher power one day. God wants us to be humble. To please him, to work hard, but not to do it for eye service, for show. You ever notice that some people you work with, and some of us may be guilty of this as well. When your boss comes around, they work real hard. And as soon as there's no supervision, they just mess around and don't do the work they're supposed to do. Well, as believers, we're supposed to set the right example. We're supposed to work in a way not to be people pleasers or just for image, but in sincerity of heart, we do this out of the fear and respect of submitting in humility to our Lord. You remember Jesus said, if you give a cup of cold water in my name, you are doing it as unto me. Christ said in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 25, that if someone went to visit, he told his disciples, a person in prison, you are doing it as unto me. If you help clothe those who are naked, you're doing it as unto me. The concept here is that when we, even if we were slaves, even when we have supervisors that are earthly masters over us, when we do what we do for the glory of God then we're doing what is right. F.F. Bruce puts it this way about verse 22, quote, Christian slaves, servants, and employees have a higher motive for faithful and conscientious performance of duty. They are servants of Christ and will work to please him, end of quote. And so our motivation is to please Christ above all things. 
Now we go to verses 23 through 25 and we see on the screen the internal dividends of humility. Recognize the proper inspiration. The idea here is for real justice, for eternal justice. Notice verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Eternal dividends of humility mean that real true biblical humility in this life will have rewards in the life to come. When we make investments in the next life, Jesus said, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust can corrupt, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. When we make eternal investments by being humble and prayerful and setting the right example, we may not always get rewarded in this life, but we will receive an eternal reward one day. R.G. Lee was right when he preached the sermon famously known as Payday Someday. And that works both in the sense of rewards as well as the sense of punishments, as we'll see in our text here. The eternal dividends of humility recognize a heartfelt passion. Whatever you do, work heartily as the Lord and not for men. The word heartily is interesting. It's a Greek word, and it's pronounced uh, suke. It's a word transliterated into English that comes from the English word psyche. P-S-Y-C-H-E, psyche, is what the word here for heartily is. And so when Paul says, whatever you do, work heartily, that word is psyche. What does it mean to say someone's psyche? It literally is defined by Webster as the soul, the mind, the heart, the spirit. The word psyche is connected to the word or term psychology. It indicates the center of of one's heart or affections. The idea that Paul is sharing with the church of Colossae is whatever you do, do it heartily. Do it with soul. (laughs) You know, we believe as Christians, as believers, as biblicists that the Bible teaches that every person has a soul, Genesis 2. But there's an aspect in the English language that when someone says, I did it with soul, it means I did it with heart, with spirit. I was very soulful in my expression. And that's the idea here. Whatever you do, work heartily. Do it for the Lord with passion, with heart, with excitement, with energy. Too blessed to be stressed. Well, yes, do it heartily. Do it with soul, from the soul, for the Lord. We do it as unto the Lord and not for men. Notice verse 24, our next point on the screen. The eternal dividends of humility recognize the Lord as a rewarder. So we understand that when we do what is right and have humility and submit to bosses or supervisors or a master that is not always treating us right, that ultimately we're doing it for the Lord because there is coming a day in which all people will give an account of themselves. Notice what verse 24 says. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Interesting expression here. N.T. Wright shares, quote, This inheritance mentioned in verse 24 is clearly alluding to life beyond this life in eternity. 
Hence the title, The Eternal Dividends of Humility. This is ironic since in, in earthly terms, slaves were not allowed to have inheritance or property. The book of Corinthians tells us that we look not at the things which are temporal, but we look at the things which are eternal. And so here Paul says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. As your reward. So we look at the bigger picture, that Christ will one day reward those who do what's right. I found this interesting, Pastor Gary. Have you ever wished that someone would pay off all your credit card debt? Mount Carmel Missionary Baptist Church in Norfolk, Virginia is making that wish come true. One Sunday of every month, Bishop Vernie Russell Jr. chooses a family in the congregation of the church to come forward. And the congregation takes up an offering to pay off their debt. Over the last 14 months, this group has collected $340,000 to rescue 59 of the church's families from debt. The author says, when we come to the Lord's Supper, we remember another debt, a greater debt that none of us can pay, and that debt was paid by Christ with his broken body and shed blood. Amazing story there, as God has evidently blessed their willingness to help people pay the debt. And Christ paid in full our debt, our sin debt, if we simply trust and repent of our sins and ask him to be our savior. In fact, notice that leads us into the idea here. You are serving the Lord Christ. How many of you have ever heard the Bible say you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ? You are serving Jesus. You are serving Christ. You are serving the Lord. Never the Lord Christ. In fact, that's true because this is the only time in the entire Bible. N.T. Wright, I quote again, says, Paul nowhere else uses the word Lord and Christ to stand together without the name Jesus in between. The force of this unusual phrase is literally saying, so work for the true master, that is Christ. Work for the true master, that is Christ. We are serving the Lord Christ, whether we we're a slave or a slave or we're the employee or we feel like we're in a situation where we'll be taking advantage of at work, we remember we're doing it for Christ. We're doing what is right for him. In fact, in one writing in the epistles it says, do what's good even when others do wrong to you, you will, as it were, heap coals of fire upon their head. Turn the other cheek. Do good to those who do wrong to you. This is the way, the truth of Christ, of humility, of doing what's right. You know, in the Bible, one of the most humble or meek men was Moses. I love Moses. He's an interesting fellow, isn't he? That dude is, it was meek. Meek is not weak. Meek is humble and courageous. Now, remember the context they even have a movie for children about Moses, Prince of Egypt. Why is it titled that way? Because Moses grew up in Pharaoh's courts, Hebrews chapter 11 says. And at a point in his life, he was willing to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin in Egypt with Pharaoh. 
And he made a choice as an adult to leave the, the pleasures and joy. But he was likely educated. That's why he wrote the, the books of the Old Testament, we believe. Probably Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses was a man with, with much education in the world, as it were, the secular world of Egypt. But he left all that. And then he, responding in obedience and humility to God's call, ends up leading the people of Israel not only through the, the Red Sea and across the wilderness, but all the way to the brink of the Promised Land. And there is Moses, having shown much patience, much humility, dealing with complaining, griping, murmuring Israelites across the entire wilderness. He finally gets there at the edge of the promised land, and he loses his temper, and he hits the rock instead of speak to it as God instructed. And the Lord says, you're not entering the promised land. Joshua would lead God's people into that promised land, the Canaan land, as we call it. It's interesting that Moses, a great example of humility, struggled in that moment to really be obedient to what God said just before he was able to see the promised land. Now, I always like to say they couldn't find Moses' body. The book of Jude has some interesting comments about the struggle for the body. But at the end of the day, he was with the Lord as all true believers are, as all true men and women of God are. And so in a sense, he entered the heavenly promised land, paradise. The eternal dividends of humility remind us that God is a rewarder as the Lord Christ of our inheritance as being in the family of God. Notice verse 25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. I like the NLT. It puts it this way. For God has no favorites. <laughs> verse 25. There is no partiality. One of our folks in prayer this morning, she mentioned that in her prayer. Partiality. God here plays no favorites. I love that. God has no favorites. We're all his children if we have accepted and trusted and followed Christ. But he reminds us not only will the Lord, verse 24, give his true followers, disciples, and believers an inheritance, a reward. But verse 25, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he or she has done. Adam Clark writes these interesting words, quote, about verse 25. It is possible for an unfaithful servant to wrong and defraud his master in a variety of ways without being caught or detected. But he or she that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong that which they have done. God sees them and will punish them for their breach of honesty and trust, end of quote. You say, Pastor John, how will God punish? I don't have all the answers. But I believe the word of God. Believe that there's coming a day when even believers will give an account of themselves. They'll be rewarded for the things they did truly out of humility for the right motive for his glory. But we will also suffer the consequences of doing things out of a wrong motive. Doing things out of a selfish motive. Even though we are believers. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and not building our foundation on hay, wood, and stubble, but rather a foundation of Christ. Sometimes the word partiality, notice here the last word of verse 25. It can mean that 
Bad workers, writes one scholar, are unfairly rewarded and good employees are left unrewarded. David cried out in the Psalms many times, Lord, why do people who do wrong seem to be blessed and people who try to do right don't seem to receive what they should? Paul assures the brethren of the first century as well as today as Christian followers of Christ that there is a final reward and punishment and there will be no partiality. In Ephesians and Colossians, Paul warned both servants and masters that there will be no partiality with God. God is not influenced or impressed with our social position. God looks at the heart, the soul. He looks at our actions of obedience. And so the one who does right, verse 24, will be rewarded. There will be eternal dividends beyond this life for doing right, doing good. But the wrongdoer will also have to pay back for the wrong he or she has done. And then finally we go to chapter 4, verse 1. The eternal dividends on our next slide, the eternal dividends of humility reminds believers of the higher power of God. The first point is chapter 4, verse 1a. The eternal dividends of humility seek to follow what I like to call the golden rule. Notice chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. Doing to others as you would have them doing to you. Flip the role. If you were in charge, how would you treat those underneath your supervision? If you're the master and not the servant or slave, how do you treat that person, those people? Be reminded that one day Jesus said the first will be last and the last will be first. I believe this world would be far better if people would practice the golden rule. If everybody treated everyone as they would want to be treated, you wouldn't have the problems we have in our world. Pride, power, control, greed. These all stem out of that abomination, that sin listed above the seven abominations. First is pride. Humility is the opposite of pride. And so masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. Throughout the history of Christianity, writes one scholar, there have been those who use these passages where Paul speaks to servants or slaves and their masters to justify or even promote the practice of slavery. Others have blamed these passages for the practice of slavery. Yet, writes the author, slavery was a universal practice that predated Christianity. One should see that the abolishment of slavery came from Christian people and not from other major religions or secularism. It's a reminder that if you truly believe there is a God who will do what's right and reward those who do and follow the teaching of Scripture as well as punish or correct those who do wrong, we know that God is no respecter of persons and that all people are a part of his body if they've accepted Christ. It does not matter who we are. Paul seemed to understand that he could establish a point that slaves were equals in the body of Christ. They should be treated in a manner both just and fair, and in time the whole structure of slavery in the Roman Empire would crumble, and it did. Paul, in the book of Philemon, addresses Onesimus, a slave, and reminds and encourages him to return to his master, even though he would eventually be free. Why? 
not because Paul condoned or approved in any way of slavery. His reminder was, as God opens that door, act in freedom. You know, people today say, well, I'm an American. I can do what I want to. There are consequences for everything you do, no matter where you live. We all reap what we sow. It's important for us to understand that there are people who are wealthy and they seemingly have great freedom and liberty and they in their hearts are slaves to sin. And yet there are people who work hard all the time and they can barely pay their bills and they're believers and they may seem to be in our financial bondage but they are free in their hearts because they have trusted in Christ. They have been liberated because of humility to trust and follow Jesus. The eternal dividends of humility connect justice with fairness. Notice the end of verse 1 says, Treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Even though Christians should not put everything into promoting social justice in this life, treating others justly and fairly can be a great testimony to the real character and nature of a God of salvation. I think that it starts one person at a time, one believer at a time. Treating other people fairly, justly, right. Treating people in a way that reflects the kindness of Christ himself. The word justly here in verse 1 is dikaios. It means righteous, observing divine laws, innocent. The word fairly means equity or equality. And so there's certainly an aspect that Paul is teaching us here that it's important for masters to set the example if they have bondservants by treating them in a way that is righteous, that remembers that there is a father, a master in heaven that is watching everything they do, everything we do. And notice the last phrase, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Our final point, the eternal dividends of humility, recognize this heavenly analogy. Our Father, our Savior, the Master, the Captain of our salvation, He is observing our lives and one day there will be eternal dividends, eternal consequences. Humility is vital to us as believers to trust in the Lord and to know that Christ will one day make all things right. Now I know that takes faith. And it's not always easy. In this life, there are a lot of things that seem and are unfair and unjust. And we certainly attempt to stand up for those who are downtrodden and oppressed. And as Christ shared, quoting in the Gospels from Isaiah 61, the ultimate downtrodden person is the person who has no hope after they die. The ultimate freedom and humility is to share with someone something you have that is the most precious treasure that you and I have, and that is Christ. There are good people that need Christ. They act in a way of humility because they were made in God's image. They try to do good to merit their own salvation. They simply need to humble themselves and recognize as I hope you have today. I can't do it on my own. I can't make it to heaven by my own deeds or works. I am helpless. 
I am humble. That is the definition of humility. Helpless before a sovereign God. I need God to save me. Remember years ago, a professor, pastor for many years said, the need of this next generation as we enter into the 2000s, the need of this generation is not just to hear about Christ, it's to understand they have a need for Christ. When people are millionaires, they think they can do it on their own. Thank God for those who become converted Christian millionaires. We need more of them to help more churches and church planners. <laughs> a lot more could get done to help the truly needy in our world if money wasn't being wasted. I don't understand that sometimes. But God in his wisdom, God in his allowance of human free will, understands that when we look to God for help, little is much when God is in it. I know we're approaching the lunch hour. We're about to share the Lord's Supper together. It seems appropriate to talk about Jesus and feeding that group of 5,000. Little boy was there, wasn't he? Why in the world did no one else have their lunch besides him? But thank God one little fella out of thousands of people brought some loaves and some fish. He had some fish and chips ready to eat for lunch. Five loaves, two fish, and Jesus took that little lunch and told his disciples, just start passing out the food. And he multiplied it. Can you imagine you go to person one and you think, well, I got five loaves of bread and two fish. How long is this going to last? And it just multiplies. And you keep passing it out. And soon thousands are fed. In fact, that's part why people kept coming to see Jesus. The miracles he did. He not only healed the sick and caused the blind to see and caused those who were crippled to be healed and raised the dead, but he fed people. Thousands from five loaves and two fish, if I understand the Bible's teaching. Little is much when God is in it. God is sovereign. God is able to provide everything that you and I need. But we must trust Him. It takes humility to put aside your plan for righteousness and to say, I am unrighteous. My righteousness is as filthy rags in the eyes of a sovereign and perfect and holy God. I need God to save me. As we prepare to share together in the Lord's Supper, I'll ask our musicians to come forward.